0: Hey guys, I want to continue this conversation that we've been having, and uh, two more weeks of this conversation. We said it's essential, necessary conversation, that it's timely as well, geared to the church, followers of Christ. But we said it's vital if you're not a follower of Christ, you're somebody checking things out, just wondering about Jesus. We think this conversation is vital. At least I would think it's vital if I was you, because there's probably a lot of curiosity and questions, particularly coming out of the last couple years because the last couple years have been anything but normal, right? A lot of disruption, it's been disorienting, and I would say there's some disappointment, fractured relationships, fear, anxiety, anger, polarization, all those things that we've talked about. So we said this moment is pivotal for the Church of Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, lean in, listen, right? Because going back to normal is not the effective response of followers of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ, if they want to somehow uh, be effective and influence our world. So what we've been doing is leaning into a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples right before the cross, and he's preparing them not for going back to normal, but he's preparing them for going into next. John 13 to 17 is where we've been hanging out, and he is kind of preparing them for what's next. And he said, hey, listen, I wanna tell you some things and we've just drawn some principles from these chapters. Things like producing fruit, staying close and connected to Jesus must replace just managing my busyness. Experiencing community must replace just attending Christian events. Uh, Following the spirit must replace just going with the flow, listening to whatever voices are out there. Uh, Devotion to the kingdom must replace cultural idolatries. There are things we've looked at, right? Now, here's what I want us to think about today. I want you to think about this, okay? You have your Bibles open, John 13. The conversation, John 13 to 17, came out of a meal. It's interesting because Jesus wanted them, and I would say subsequently us, to regularly have a meal like the meal that this is coming out of so that they could remember and so that we could remember the truths of the conversation that he's having. So the meal is to help remember the truths. And at this powerful meal that he has, he gives them some powerful pictures, symbols, so that as they go into next, that it will keep them anchored in the uncertainties. Uh, meals were important then, right? Meals were important then and they're important now. Just just think about it. We gather, celebrate around meals. We like to eat, right? We have Christmas dinner right? Uh, when somebody has a birthday, a lot of times, what's your favorite meal? And you have a birthday dinner. Or we love to cook out, right? Fourth of July, Labor Day, Memorial Day, and a lot of other days, right? Uh, my favorite meal is Thanksgiving. Uh, I love that meal. We have the same food every Thanksgiving, right? I, we're traditionalists. Uh, turkey and mashed potatoes, sweet potato casserole, uh, stuffing, green bean all that stuff. Same food every time. And then one of the things I love about Thanksgiving is that's the time when family gets together. And one of the things it reminds me of, I look around the table at Thanksgiving, it reminds me of the different roles that I play. I look down there and I realize, well, I'm a dad. I look over here and I'm well, I'm a husband. I, I look over here and I'm well, I'm a son-in-law. My mother-in-law lives with us. I look over here and I'm like, well now I'm a father in law. I look here, I I'm an uncle, I'm a brother, uh, and now I'm a I'm a granddad. But <laughs> so like you have one picture of me, the guy talking to you on this, right? Or maybe I'm maybe we know each other and I'm Pastor Dan. But I have all these other and so that meal like reminds me that my life is not just one dimensional. I'm not just a pastor, but I got all these roles, right? That I get to play that make me who I am. And then one of the things I love about, I don't know about you guys, but, but when we're sitting around a meal together, it's like you always have these go-to stories, right? It's like, and you laugh, and maybe you cry, and you remember, right? I mean, the Gregory home, we have these go-to stories. Remember the time mom parked the car, but she didn't put the car in park, and the car drifted across the highway, and you know, like, we just kind of laugh every time that story comes up. Don't tell her I told you that, right? Uh, we'll talk about people who are gone. Remember dad and mom? Remember when they did that? We have go-to stories. Well, you know, what's the point? Meals were important then, just as they are now, and the conversation comes out of a meal where they would celebrate and remember some poignant pictures of Jesus, some powerful pictures that are going to paint a picture of Jesus. And as they ate this meal together, it would remind them, as they ate it over and over again, of the go-to stories about Jesus that painted a more complete picture of who he really was. And guys, that was the point, (laughs) That was the point as they went into next. He wanted them, with these pictures that he paints in this meal, he wanted them to have certain pictures as reference points during the certain uncertainties that they certainly would face. (laughs) Say that three times fast. Because uncertainty is certain. All through the arc of human history, there are times of uncertainty. And as they went into next, the disciples are going to face it, and you're going to face it as we go into next. And he says, I want these things. Now, here's the deal. In this conversation that he's having, there's three things he talked to them about. There's other things, but there's three themes that kind of keep going. First is this. He's letting them know, I'm getting ready to go and lay down my life for you. I'm going to die for you. The second thing is, I'm going to go away, but I'm coming back. And the third is, in the meantime, I want you to abide in me. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going away, and I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, I want you to abide in me. So, 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 so here's how it unfolded. The meal unfolds, and he said some of the things that he didn't want them to forget So he left them with these pictures and these symbols with these important truths so that when they ran into what was next with its difficulties, challenges, and uncertainties, these pictures and this meal that they would celebrate on a regular basis would remind them of certainties in the middle of the certain uncertainties they were going to face. Look at John 13 verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Look at this. Having loved his own, he loved them who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's what's interesting. In a few short hours, they're going to see the ultimate demonstration of that love as Jesus goes to the cross. And they're going to be reminded of something else he said to them in John 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Now, here's what I want you to know is this comment comes right out of a meal where he did something interesting in the middle of the meal. These guys are sitting around, they're having a meal together. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus did something very interesting. For whatever reason, John doesn't record it, but Luke did. And when Luke recorded it, he records it this way. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then he gave it to them. He breaks the bread and he passes it around. This is my body given for you, he says to them. Do this in remembrance of me. Like every time you eat this meal, I want you to have this picture. In the same way, after supper, he had took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he passed it around, (laughs) pre-COVID, right? But he passed it around. And they share this cup. And he's like, every time you do this, you're going to proclaim my death. He takes the bread and he takes the cup. And he says, every time that you eat this meal, this commemorative meal, as a group of followers, I want you to take bread and break it and remember my body given for you. I want you to take cup from the cup and drink it and remember my blood. I want you to remember that in a few hours... They're going to come and take me. They're going to arrest me and they're going to crucify me. And I want you guys to remember this, that I'm not being killed, but that I am laying down my life for my friends. That's what I want you to remember. When you gather around this meal and when generations after you gather around the communion meal, I want you to remember and never forget something very important. I want you to write this down. Grace did replace guilt. Grace did replace guilt. Jesus did not come to start a political revolution. Jesus did not come to start a moral revolt. Jesus did not come to to institute a religious institution. Jesus came... To offer himself as a sacrifice in our place for our guilt and for our sin. And therein lies the good news of God. Grace did replace guilt. He says, Every time you take this meal, I want you to remember that. That's why I came. Every time you break the bread and drink the cup, we're reminded of something. We're reminded that we're guilty. All of us, raise your hand if you're guilty. If you don't have your hand out, you're lying and you're guilty, (laughs) right? We're all guilty. The Bible says we're all sinners. We all have things in our life that we're ashamed of, that we regret. We wish we could redo. We wish we could erase. We're all guilty. You know it. I know it. We all know it. And if you don't know it, the people around you know it. And we find different things to do with our guilt. Two things in particular. I share this all the time, but I want to share it with you. Uh, some of us, because we're guilty, we think, well, if I'm already guilty, I might as well compound my guilt. Just go all in, eat, drink. I'm going to have a party. Live it up. But I would say that the majority of people don't compound their guilt. You know what they do? Maybe this is you. They cover their guilt. You say, what do you mean by that? They cover it by becoming really religious, moral, good people, and they think if, if the good that I do can cover and maybe outweigh the bad and the guilt, then maybe I'll impress God, I'll impress others. So we cover our guilt, become really religious, and we put that over top of our guilt, hoping somehow we can fake others out, impress God. In the meantime, listen, listen, here's the problem. That whether you compound it, live it up, party, go full bore, or you cover it, religious, moral, they're both the same. Because whether you compound it or you cover it, you still have to carry it. And some of you... Are carrying your guilt today some of you watching this listening to this, you're carrying your guilt and Jesus wants you to know that you do not have to carry it there's a third choice that you can cast your guilt onto him listen he carried his cross so you wouldn't have to carry your guilt He carried his cross so that you wouldn't have to carry your guilt. The moment you and I say yes to Jesus and his gift of grace, you then receive his righteousness. He loves you. Grace did replace guilt. Here's the way Paul wrote it. He said, at just the right time, just put your name in there. When Dan was still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Dan. Very rarely anyone would die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for Dan. In this, while Dan was still a sinner, Christ died for Dan. You put your name in there. You see, here's the deal. It reminds me of I'm guilty and it reminds me of his grace and that as followers, that's the gospel. The gospel says that it is his grace that replaces my guilt. And he's waiting for us to say yes to his gift of grace. Every time we take of the bread and take of the cup, I'm reminded of his grace and I'm reminded of my guilt and his grace came to replace my guilt. He died for all the things I'm guilty of. Are you still carrying your guilt? Grace did replace guilt. Not only that, but can I say this? Every time I take of the bread and the cup, I'm reminded that I'm not part of a political revolt. I'm not part of a moral revolution. I'm not just simply part of a religious institution that goes through religious rituals, but I'm part of a gospel movement where grace is on the move because guilt is rampant. What Jesus is saying here is like, I want you to remember that as you go into next. That's the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the most important thing that grace replaces guilt. And that's why I came. After Jesus broke the bread and and, and shared the cup with them, something odd (laughs) happened around the table. Maybe this happens around your table too. Maybe this is just indicative of family dinners. I don't know, but a dispute also arose among them. Just raise your hand if, like, that's that's sometimes what happens at holiday meals or when the whole family get like it's easy, right? All of a sudden, Uncle Festus says something, and Aunt Matilda she gets upset, and you know, before you know, it, there's a dispute. Well, they're arguing about something. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. <laughs> you can't make this up. This is in Luke twenty-two, right? Right after the bread and the cup. This fight breaks out, and they're fussing with each other about who's the greatest. Imagine that. Uh, John and James, they're brothers, so they're tag-teaming it, man. You know, our mama came, and she talked to Jesus about this, and we already said it. Philip's like, I found the boy with the fish in the loaves, right? Pete's like, yeah, well, that's another man. I jumped out the boat, you know? I mean, you can almost hear him, right? Andrew looks at Pete's like, you wouldn't even be here if I didn't bring you." <laughs> Whatever, right? Matthew like, man, I left a lucrative business, so I must be the greatest. Fighting about who's the greatest, Keep that in mind. They're fussing about which of them is the greatest. And now look back at John 13. This is where John picks it up because they're fussing and they're fighting. And look at what happens. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God. And he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you imagine this scene, guys? Just let it sink in a minute. Weird, unusual to say the least. I-, I bet you in that room, they're like, no, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. And then when Jesus gets up, I bet you can hear a pin drop. Because while they're arguing about who's the greatest, the one in their midst who is literally God wrapped in skin, wraps a towel around his waist. While they're arguing about who's the greatest, the one in the myth who is Lord and King stoops to take the posture of a servant to wash their feet. And now you have Jesus with a towel kneeling in front of James, John, Philip, and Andrew. What's he doing? Well, at minimum, at minimum, he's giving them an illustration of what it means to truly be great in this upside-down kingdom of God. Because his disciples had bought into the very idea of greatness that our upside down world sells to us. And Jesus came with a message that looks upside down, but it's actually right side up. Our world is upside down. In our world, greatness and my greatness and what it means to be great is I look at how many people are serving me. In Jesus' world, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is how many people am I serving? In my world, greatness is found in climbing the ladder. In Jesus' world, greatness is found in taking a knee. In my world, greatness is sitting on my throne. But in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is found in taking up the towel and serving. As you guys, he says, walk into what's next, you must remember this, that not only did grace replace guilt, but humility... Must replace pride. Humility must dismantle pride, and we are full of pride. Jesus shows them that true greatness is not what they were taught, and it's not what we've been taught, and it's not what our upside-down world convinces us it is. They all want it to be great. They all want it to be significant. By the way, so do you. In your own way. And Jesus makes it clear that greatness in his kingdom is upside down from the way the world looks at it, that greatness is actually leveraging myself beneath you to serve you. Greatness is found in true humility that serves not in pride that is self-seeking and self-promoting. And at minimum, he's illustrating to them greatness. Humility must replace pride. But it's what happened next in the story that I think for the disciples became one of those go-to stories. You remember that time? (laughs) Because Jesus came to old Simon Peter and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's almost this, I don't know, prideful humility going on here. It can be weird, right? Jesus said, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Then Peter, and this in the original language is emphatic. He's like, no way. You ain't doing that. <laughs> you shall, look, never wash my feet. Then Jesus says something. He says, if, 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 unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's like Jesus saying, I'm not just illustrating. This isn't optional. This picture it's not about your feet. It's what I'm trying to picture. And he says, If what I'm trying to picture in washing your feet doesn't happen, you can't remain in me, abide in me, stay connected and close to me. You have no part with me. <laughs> That's interesting because I love, and Peter, this is what I love about Peter. Well, not just my feet, Then He says, let's let's have a bath. How about my hands and my head as well? Let's go all in. And Jesus says, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. You're clean already, right? That always makes me think of when I would get my bath on Saturday night as a little kid. You know, my, my mom would, you know, next day's church, take a bath Saturday night. But always when you wake up Sunday morning, they've got to kind of clean things off. She, she'd do that, right? I didn't need another bath, but I need a little mom sprucing up, a little spit shine going on. He says, those who need a bath, but their feet... Y'all's feet got dirty walking here. Their whole body's clean. He's making a point. It's just a picture. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not every one was clean. (laughs) Jesus is teaching something here that is essential, that is an essential element, element to intimacy with him, remaining with him, and abiding with him. Many of us, just like Peter, don't understand We think it's just Jesus being humble in this picture. He's a humble servant, so I'm going to be a humble servant who's willing to do a menial task of a servant like washing their feet, and that is true. But there is so much more that we see in his encounter with Peter because Jesus wanted these guys to know as they ran into next that humility, true humility was going to be admitting that there were gonna be times where we need Jesus' forgiveness, even as followers of Christ. For followers of Christ, there is a real sense in which Jesus every day is kneeling in front of us, just like he did Peter. And he has the proverbial basin and the proverbial towel. Commentator Fred Brunner says this, he says that y'all don't need a bath. You've had a bath when you said yes to Jesus that the bath points to us saying yes to Jesus, justification. And the picture that we have of that is baptism. We're baptized, we're clean. But even as fully bathed followers, even once we become followers of Christ, our feet get dirty. He's saying this, even as followers of Christ, sometimes we do things that are wrong, that are sinful, that we regret. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Shake your head if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus listening to me. Just shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. And what he's saying is humility is willing to admit my bad attitude. Humility is, is willing to admit my wrong thoughts, my unhealthy habits. Humility is willing to admit my part in the broken relationship that I'm struggling with. Humility first goes to Jesus and confesses. And admits and acknowledges my part, my sin, and then to each other. And what Jesus is saying is, you run into next, he is here right now, kneeling in front of us with the proverbial basin and towel. And yet, the truth is, the truth is, there are some of us who, like Peter, will not put our feet, proverbially speaking, in the basin and admit that we need cleaned. Pride, denial, everything's fine. Or, or how about this? For some of us, the reason we won't do that is we just get used to our stinky feet. <laughs> we get used to our stinking attitude. We get used to our bad habits. We get used to the way that we treat other people. We deny it. We try to outrun it. Or we compare ourselves to others. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Sally. Sally. That's why what John says later in 1 John 1 8 through 10, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, this is what it means to put your proverbial feet in the basin of grace and accept the towel of forgiveness. He's faithful and just and he will, he's got the towel ready to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we will not do that, if we claim we have not sinned, if we don't acknowledge our sin, this is written to followers of Christ, by the way, we make him, who? God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus said, you have no part with me. Here, John says it this way, his word is not in us. Let me ask you a question. (laughs) That's big, right? What would it mean for you to humbly put your stinky toe jam full feet in and to confess your sin to the one who's kneeling in front of you? He is here right now. He's there in the living room right now at this moment. And he promises to forgive and to wipe clean that dirt with a towel of forgiveness in the basin of his grace. He says this is an essential part of abiding I honestly think this is so instructive for the church. Confession of our sin is vital for running into next. He says it's vital for staying close and connected to him. It involves true humility. But, but the picture's not done, he's not done. The cascading picture isn't complete because when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, because that's what I am. I am your teacher and Lord. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, in that position have washed your feet, what should you do? You should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What's he saying? He's saying, when you guys get together, and you share this memorial meal together. We call it communion. I want you to wash each other's feet. That's weird. Why? Because it's a symbol. A reminder that humility in following the example of Jesus is certainly serving others, but it also is acknowledging that I need him to daily cleanse me. But there's something else going on here. Do you want to know how you'll know? that you're beginning to allow humility to replace pride. You want to know how you know? Doing this with and for each other. Not just the act of washing their feet. We do do that at our communion services together. It's a beautiful and humbling experience. But what it pictures is when I know that I'm, I'm beginning to allow humility to replace pride. It's one thing for me to place my dirty, stinky, toe jammed feet in the basin Jesus places in front of me and to confess my sin to Jesus. But to do that with another human being, guys, that's humbling. James, Jesus' half brother, picks up on this. He says, Therefore, what does he say? Say it out loud. Confess your sins to what? each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It is entirely another step of humility for me to go to my wife and say, will you please forgive me for hurting you by having a bad attitude today? It's entirely another thing for me to go to one of my teammates and say, will you please forgive me for talking to you in a terse and angry tone? It's entirely another thing for me to go to my kids and say, will you please forgive me for acting out of anger earlier today and hurting you? It's entirely another thing for me to go to my neighbor and say, will you please forgive me for being an idiot and being concerned over things that don't matter, and being a bad neighbor? <laughs> you see, here's the deal. It's, it's like he says, I want you to wash each other's feet because I want you to remind yourself that that's when humility begins to take root. And yet it is the hidden and unaddressed toe jam of our hearts, if I could say it that way, that create the stink and begin to permeate our relationships. It's easier just to pretend it didn't happen. It's easier just to try to move on, try to outrun it. But the toe jam goes with us, the toe jam of our heart, the stink of our heart. The picture, though, continues to cascade. Because here's the deal, not only does humility come into play when I place my feet in the basin of grace and the towel of forgiveness, my wife, my kids, my teammates, my neighbor, my friends, but that humility extends forgiveness to those who've hurt me. You see, I think that's the point Jesus is making, that when people hurt me and come to me, will I take a knee? Will I offer them a basin? And will I be wrapped with the same towel? Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ God forgave you. I think Jesus is saying this. The reason I want you to wash each other's feet is because I want you to realize going in the next, if you don't, your feet are going to get stinky. Your heart is going to get calloused. He's saying, if the Lord washed your feet and is willing to lap the water of forgiveness over the stink of your life and my life, your dirt and my dirt, and clean up the toe jam of our lives, then who do I think I am not to extend the basin and towel to others in my life? To my spouse, to my kids, to my siblings, to my friends, my co-workers? you fill in the blank. Remember whose feet Jesus is washing in this picture. Every last one of them is going to desert him. One of them is going to deny he knows him before breakfast. And one of them is going to betray him into the hands of his killers. Jesus says, when you guys get together, I want you to remember this. He gives them pictures at this meal. I want you never to forget that grace, What you're going to see, me on the cross, grace replaces guilt. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. I want you then to remember, humility must replace pride. Yes, in serving each other, but in somehow admitting and confessing my sin, not just to Jesus, but to each other, and being willing to forgive. Then it takes another step. All this takes place over a meal that was at first originally to memorialize the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt. Passover feast, you've probably heard of it. Jesus is now using this meal to commemorate and remember not only these things, but to point ahead to another meal to come. So so he institutes this meal, which is now going to look forward, and it's during this meal that he's not just remembering the past, but he points to the future, a future meal a future meal that will be enjoyed by all the followers of Christ. Write this down in your notes. It's found in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Jesus is the king, and he's throwing a victory celebration. He is not just the king, but he is the groom who's the king. And he's throwing a victory wedding celebration. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And around the table are all the followers of Christ. It makes every Super Bowl party look lame because Jesus, the Groom King, is also the warrior judge who will judge the earth, throw Satan into his doom, and he's going to make all things new. And he wanted his followers to gather around this symbolic meal where there would be washing of feet, breaking of bread, sharing of the cup but it was around this meal that would point to this future meal we call communion, celebrating this moment because he wanted them to remember some things that he said in John 13 through 17. Not the least of which was, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because you're going to be in a world where there's trouble. And he says, you share this meal, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. Your untroubled hearts are going to be connected to, do you believe me? Do you trust me? My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming back, he says. I'm going to take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He's like, I want you to believe that. I want you to know that. Don't let your hearts be troubled as you share this meal. I want it to remind you of this meal that we're going to share someday with Jesus. He says, I don't want you to ever forget that the final chapter of this story has not been written yet The whole story has not been told And in the middle of a world That can sometimes be disappointing Sometimes be hard Sometimes where there is trouble I want you As you run into next To be anchored in hope Can we just take a minute And recognize we need that
1: <laughs> These last
0: couple of years have Been heavy for some of y'all Disappointing Some of y'all have fractured relationships. Some of y'all have lost people, lost jobs. Some of you have health issues. And Jesus said, I want you to share this meal. And then after they were done with the meal, he's like, because here's what I want you to know. In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this time, the disciples are like, what does he mean by saying in a little while, you'll see me and no more? And then after a little while, you'll see me because I'm going to be the father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. A lot of times the disciples are like, ah, we don't get it. <laughs> Jesus went on to say this to them. He said, he saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, you'll see me no more? Then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn when the world rejoices. Can we just stop a minute and say that's true sometimes? Father of Christ, like, man, it just feels like, what's going on? You'll grieve, but your grief, circle this in your Bibles, will turn to joy. And then he uses this illustration, which you gals out there, if you're a mom, you understand this better than us fellas. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. I've seen that. That's true. <laughs> because her time has come but when that baby's born it is amazing she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world so with you now is your time of grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy what's he saying he's like this I want you to share this meal because I want you to remember joy will replace grief there's some now We experience joy now, but he's like, the fact that Jesus, what is he saying to them? He's like, they would experience this joy in part because in a few days, they're going to see him resurrected from the dead. But eventually, he's going to leave him again. And his resurrection from the dead just simply meant that he beat death and sin, and he crushed Satan in the process, the author of grief. But his resurrection on the third day pointed to the grand resurrection on that day. When he will come as king, and he will rule, and when he does, joy will replace grief. And he will make all things new. And there will be no more pain, no more death, no more dying, no more racism. You fill in the blanks. He says, when you gather around this meal, I want you to remember these pictures. Grace did replace guilt. Are you still carrying your guilt? Why not say yes to Jesus and cast your guilt on the one who died for you? Humility must replace pride. Can I ask you this? Are you reluctant to place your feet in the basin of grace and towel of forgiveness that Jesus has sitting in front of you this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you reluctant to do that with people you've hurt or the people who've hurt you Jesus is like saying these pictures I want you to remember as you go into what's next because this will happen you will hurt each other you will get in each other's way and then he says this when you guys get here and share this meal I want you to remember we're gonna have a party someday Ain't gonna be no Super Bowl party it'll be marriage supper of the lamb party we're gonna have a party and joy will replace grief And some of you feel that grief in a significant way this morning. And Jesus says this, right now, grief. Right now, grief. But joy will replace grief and no one will be able to take that joy from you. Father, I am so grateful for those that are listening today. And I pray for them. Some of them don't know Jesus. They are still carrying their guilt. I pray right here, right now, As we talk, they would give their heart and life to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again, and I want to confess you as my Savior, claim you as Lord of my life. Some that are listening today, some that are listening today would say they're followers of Jesus, but they've been walking around with crusty hearts and they've been walking around with pride that somehow will not place their sin in the basin of grace so that you can cleanse with the towel of forgiveness. I pray that you would lean in with humility so that relationships could be mended, so that attitudes could be healed. God, I think of some that are walking through grief, and I pray for them, and I don't know who they are, but someone's listening maybe right now who's just so overcome with the grief of the last two years, so overcome with the grief of the news they just received, so overcome with the grief of fractured relationships. God, I pray that they would share in this picture and realize that as followers of Christ, joy will replace our grief. And I thank you for that hope. I pray this in Jesus' name.